many people, most people, almost all people hearing my voice today know the story that's contained in the book of Genesis at the beginning, the creation of the first man, Adam, and woman, Eve, and Adam was created outside the garden. Adam was then put in the garden. Adam was given some stipulations, some do's and don'ts. Adam was put to sleep. Out of his side, God took a rib. If God could take, if God could take from the dust of the earth and form Adam out of it, breathing into him the breath of life, then surely, surely he could create Eve from Adam. And so that's what he did. But women don't don't get all proud. We came from man. Men came from dirt. Yeah, but if you trace the man, he goes back to dirt. And so you you came from dirt too. Um, so there we had the first marriage. The rest of Scripture looks back at the relation of Adam and Eve as the first um, marriage. You can see that in various places. Um, Matthew 19, for instance. Genesis chapter 3 introduces us into a different kind of a situation. Same place, same time, different circumstances. And I want to read part of Genesis chapter 3 to introduce our sermon. It's not our sermon. It's my sermon. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, this is really odd, right? we got a creature not in the image of God speaking to a creature in the image of God to the woman. Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Red flag, right? God says one thing. The serpent denies that's the truth. He doesn't deny that God said it. He's basically calling God a liar. For God knows that in a day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Oh, that's very interesting. I, I wish I was there to see whether or not Adam said, we probably shouldn't be doing this or not. It doesn't seem like he did. He just, she gave to her husband and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God and among the trees of the garden. They had this sense of guilt, filth, something's wrong with them now. God had warned them that the day that you eat from the forbidden tree, you shall surely 
die. Now, they didn't go to hell. Uh, their souls weren't extracted from their bodies at the moment, but they had this spiritual death, this divine judgment that came upon their souls that altered the state of their souls. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. By the way, this interrogation by the Lord God, is it so that God would acquire information he did not possess? No. Who is it for? Well, Adam and Eve, and for us as well. What is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Amazon.com deceived me, and I clicked. You know. So the Lord God said to the serpent, here's, here's the divine response to human sin. This is curse language. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Look at verse 15. Again, curse language, curse motif. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between, this is corporate now, your seed and her seed. Now watch what happens at the end. Singular, masculine. He, her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there we have Genesis chapter 3. Creation, it's all good, it's very good. The creation of man, woman, Adam, Eve, in the image and likeness of God. The stipulations God gives to Adam, and we extend them to Eve as well, in the garden, the garden is a place of fruition. There's beautiful plants, animals. There's water running in the garden. Uh, we learn later there's actually precious jewels in the garden as well. A garden's probably not this puny place like this little postage stamp, you know, in your backyard. It seems to be quite a, a large place up on a mountain because there's water flowing. Water flows haven't figured it out yet, not uphill, but downhill, right? So this is, this is God's place with God's people under God's rule. This is the special place on the earth where God is manifesting himself to creatures. The later language of scripture uses the word temple for that, those words that I just described as the God. Matter of fact, later in the Bible, it looks back at the garden like a temple palace. There was a king there, a vice regent, a cre created king, Adam, who failed his 
duty, his responsibility. So we have a perplexing problem when we read the first three uh, chapters of Genesis. We have God, we have not God. In the realm of not God, the creatures, we have angels, we have men, we have beasts, we have plants, uh, we have soil, we have water, we have different configurations of soil and mountains and valleys and, you know, whatever it was like. Then we have this serpent. I didn't do that on purpose, by the way. <laughs> serpent. This creature, which is a pawn of, we learn later, Satan, the deceiver, the liar from the beginning, the devil, that's language subsequent scripture uses to describe this character that's behind this serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. You know how some people read that? The perpetual hostility between men and snakes. Why do you not like snakes? Right there. You're laughing at John Calvin because he actually said that in one of his commentaries. Then toward the end of the section, Calvinists say, however, it seems to be individualized curse at the end of verse 15. He, the seed of the woman, shall bruise the head of the serpent. Um, the seed of the woman is going to deliver a death blow to the devil, basically. The Son of God appeared in order to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 on the Bible timeline, way over here, describing what happened at the incarnation, but connecting it with this weird curse in Genesis 3.15. I submit to you that God's remedy for the presence of, the pollution of, and the power and guilt of sin is right there in encapsulated form in Genesis 3.15c. He shall bruise your head. Now, other places in the Old Testament, uh, the same word or a synonym for that word might be used. And sometimes in some of your translations, he'll crush the head of the serpent. Um, there's other skull crushing that goes on in the Old Testament, which is real, really interesting. A friend of mine wrote an article once, The Skull-Crushing Seed of the Woman. I've used the language before. And he goes through the Old Testament. He shows how this Genesis 3.15c text is actually, actually reverberates. It sounds itself out in other places where you have warfare going on. Ultimately, it's found in its fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the remedy... God's remedy for Adam's sin is not for you to go to church. Everybody just gets up and walks out, right? It's good that you're here and we're assembling in the name of Christ. God's remedy for Adam's sin and your sin is not to try harder. It is to believe in Jesus. And I hope to show you why, because he is the remedy for Adam's sin. The, Bible, the Bible's teaching concerning the problems, excuse me, the Bible's teaching concerning the problems of men and women may reduce, be reduced to a three-lettered word. S-I-N is how you spell it. 
Sin is how you pronounce it, okay? I have problems. People in my life have problems. Um, I am my own largest problem is the way we ought to look at it. Why? Because I have sin. What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. Sin is a transgression of the law, either by doing, not doing what God requires or by doing what God forbids. None of us can say, oh, 24-7, the entirety of my life, I have loved the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my neighbor as myself. It's just not true of any of us. Not one of us, Scripture says elsewhere. There's no, no one righteous, no Not one, but if you were listening to the hymns we sang, we sang of somebody who was righteous, right? There's no creature created in the image of God who's come by natural generation of a human father and mother that is now righteous. We could say, in one sense, Adam and Eve were created with an original righteousness, but they lost it, and none of us have it. So sin is our biggest problem. Not other people's sin, although that's a problem, but our own personal sin. Since Adam's first transgression, all men, all women, all boys, all girls of every era of history all across the globe have the same disease, have this defect we call sin. We possess something that is a problem and we lack something that ends up being a problem as well. And there's no pill we can take. I guess we could take the gospel pill, right? There's no pill, P-I-L-L, that we can take that'll solve our problem. Okay, there are no resolves high enough, grand enough that we can make and actually attain unto that will solve our problems. Matter of fact, even if our spouse or our parent or our child or who else made those resolves and they attained to them, it still wouldn't, which by the way, they can't, uh, it still wouldn't solve our problems. Our problems don't start, start with others, people. Our problems start with ourselves. So we need a remedy. God has provided the remedy. We're all born with this defect. We possess in our souls an inclination toward sin, toward transgressing God's law, which, by the way, the inclination toward sin is itself a guilt-incurring sin. The desire to sin, even though we don't carry it out to its end, is still sin. By the way, that's pretty important in our day and age because some people are saying, oh, you can have pent-up desires that are actually not wholesome. But as long as you don't do them, they're not sin. You haven't incurred guilt. 
So I can sit here desiring the murder of Miguel by my own hands. But if I don't carry it out, it's okay. Uh, It's not okay. It's worse than we realize. None of us are righteous in ourselves. All of us fall away. All of us fall way, way short of God's righteous requirements for us. Matter of fact, after Adam and Eve sinned and this guilt, this uh, curse comes upon them, upon the serpent, upon the woman, upon the man, upon the earth, what, what happens in Genesis chapter 4? Everything just went on its merry way or murder. The first family has big family issues, don't they? Big problems. It's almost like after the fall into sin, you have the history of the early world. It's a lot of sin. It's a lot of bad stuff that's happening. There's, there's murder. There's lying. There's rape. There's a lot of stuff that happens. But there's something else that's happening as well, and that's the remedy that God announces in Genesis 3.15c is actually developing slowly but surely. So, by the way, why do we have a Bible? Because sin is, and God has a remedy for it, and he, he wants to announce it to the nations. No amount of effort, however, can purge the stain that we all have. No personal resolves can clear us of past faults, can purify us of present pollution, or ensure future compliance with God's law. We don't need better New Year's resolutions and more grit to keep them. Have you ever made a New Year's resolution? Probably you have. How long did it take to fail? And so the next year you go, no, same resolution, more grit, and probably failed again. Maybe not. But New Year's resolutions and more grit don't solve the problem of our sin-stained souls. We need a better remedy than that. As Paul assures us, the mind set on the flesh, uh, corrupted human nature, is death. It is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Now that's kind of... Negative, isn't it? Paul's perspective on corrupted human nature is a realistic perspective. That is, what he says actually corresponds with reality. It's not just rhetorical overflow. He's not just piling up negative things that aren't really true to reality. He's speaking that which is that which corresponds to reality. He's telling us the truth. Uh, we have big problems. In fact, we are our first and biggest problem. So we need a remedy, and it's not to be found in us. We need a remedy that's to be found, but not in us. Therefore, it must come from outside of us. We need a remedy that handles all of the problems, all of the issues Uh, that are now between us and God and us and others, we need a remedy from heaven, in other words. We need, when you read the first two and a half chapters of Genesis, 
what you come to, you have to come to this conclusion if you want to read it rightly. This curse is God's way of saying heaven is going to do something about this mess that happened early on in the earth's history. So, if I had a title, God's Remedy for Adam's Sin, Genesis 3.15, C. Now, according to Genesis 3.15, the first promise of Christ, a seed or an offspring of the woman will come to destroy the effects of the serpent, who is the devil. Genesis 3.15, again, this is the New American Standard, a different translation, but I will put enmity between you, <coughs> you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now again, this comes in a form of a curse upon the serpent, the pawn of the devil. And what God is saying is that an offspring of the woman... A male offspring of the woman doesn't say a male offspring of the man and the woman, which older interpreters say, ah, couched in this weird curse language is actually an implicit promise for the seed of the woman to come from a woman without a man. The virgin shall give birth, Isaiah 7, Isaiah, Isaiah 7, 14. We shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So here we have this curse, which ends up being a promise as well. Um, of an offspring, of a male offspring from the seed of the woman, a seed of the woman, one who comes from woman, who will destroy the effects of the devil's work on the earth. And the question is, who is this seed of the woman? You know what my answer is. Most uh, of you know what the answer of Scripture is. It is this figure called, named Jesus Christ. By the way, he's not named Christ. Jesus is not his first name, and Christ is not his last name, right? Jesus is his given name, which, by the way, has... Tons of signification in and of itself. It's the Hebrew name for Joshua, which is the Lord saves. You think it's kind of interesting? Or maybe on purpose that he was, uh, he was named Jesus. Christ is a title concerning his mission. He was anointed. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed servant of the Lord promised in the Old Testament, having come in the first Century. He is the seed of the woman, um, ultimately. So I have some things I want to tease out concerning God's remedy for Adam's sin and ours. And the first is this. This seed of the woman will be a man, body and soul, an image bearer of God. Here's Galatians 4.4. 4, but when the fullness of the time came... God sent forth his son. Notice, the son was sent as son, not to become son. Therefore, 
Son as son pre-exists son as son of man. Son as son of the father is an eternal sonship. He's the eternal son of the eternal father, which is mind-boggling to us. But Galatians 4.4 is a huge text. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. It's December. We're thinking about the incarnation in our culture, which some people are. Um, by the way, most people thinking about the incarnation in our day think of it in a heretical way, don't really understand the teaching of Scripture. But hey, they're thinking about it, so let's educate ourselves and maybe someday help them to think through this. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. This seed of the woman will be a man, a, holy, a body and soul, an image bearer of God. And the word became flesh, body, soul, real or very man. Colossians 1.17, he is the image of the invisible, 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. The seed of the woman is the Son of God incarnate, our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we make such a deal about uh, Christ? Why do I try to preach Jesus every Lord's Day, every sermon, somehow, some way? Because when it's all said and done, there's no hope without him. Not just for glory, but for sanity and perseverance in this life. We need Jesus not for gl just glory. We need Jesus and his grace for now. Not just lost people, certainly they do, but saved people. Second, the seed of the woman is a sinless image bearer. First, Adam, man, Adam the first, was an image bearer. Let us make man in our image. Some sense in which man can exhibit characteristics that are somehow connected to God, but they're not divine characteristics. They're analogous to that, but they're still creaturely. We can be like God. We can... Um, we can distinguish right from wrong. But Adam, the first sinless image bearer, sinned. Eve sinned. God judged them, and the divine judgment has come to all of us. But here, this seed of the woman is a sinless image bearer. I think one of the reasons, uh, one of the reasons why uh, some people interpret Genesis 3.15c as an implicit promise of the virgin birth of the seed of the woman is because they realize the first Adam, the first public person, Adam the first represented others as a sinless image bearer. If there is to be another public person, it's an old way of saying, federal or covenantal head who represents others, then he can't be a sinner. He's got to, if he's going to correspond on that level with the first Adam, then he needs to be sinless. 
Listen to what Scripture tells us uh, in more than one place. This is Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, which means very man, he assumed flesh, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That's what we need. We need somebody who's in our flesh, who is our public representative before God, who does not sin. Hebrews 4.14 identifies this high priest as one who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He is sinless for the benefit of others. Do you think Jesus was sinless just for the benefit of himself? His sinlessness uh, proved he was the, the unique mediator between God and man, and that's it? Or was his sinlessness uh, actually for us and for our salvation as well? I think it was. Third, the seed of the woman is the last Adam. See, you see what I'm doing here? I'm just using the Bible to kind of shed light on the Bible itself. We have the Word of God over here in the New Testament most often, but sometimes in the prophets. On the Word of God, the Old Testament, here, the promises of Genesis 3.15c. We have the Word of God on the Word of God. And what's the next line? And when we have the word of God on the word of God, we have the word of God on the word of God. And therefore, it is God commenting on divine promises or curse promises like this one, Genesis 3.15. See, in his own word, it's infallible commentary. That's pretty important. You mean God sheds light on God's word? You mean God teases out from previous revelation teases out more light, more knowledge from just Genesis 3.15, see? You mean God, God comments in God's word on God's word previously given and draws out of the previously given word, Genesis 3.15, see, a bunch of glorious entailments that are there in seed form, but await further revelation to be known among men. Yes, that's exactly what happens. And that's a wonderful thing and should, be, should help all of us read Scripture appropriately. This last Adam language, the seed of the woman is the last Adam. Guess where I got that phrase from, last Adam? Well, I made it up on my own. No, I didn't. I, most of you know where I got it from. I got it from the Bible. I got it from the New Testament. I got it from one of the epistles of Paul. I got it from 1 Corinthians. I got it from 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is talking about the resurrection, and he, he has this language of first man, last man, first Adam, last Adam. First man, second man. First Adam, last Adam. Paul's talking about the future resurrection of the sons of God, and he's utilizing language of first Adam and second Adam. He says there's something about Jesus as the last Adam that secures our status as resurrected ones in the future, even though it hasn't happened. 
But if he's been raised from the dead, then the rest of us shall be raised from the dead. So it's in that context that Paul, the apostle himself of the Gentiles, uh, says this, for instance, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man, the last Adam. The last Adam is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became man. The last Adam, unlike the first Adam, was tempted in the wilderness by the devil and did not succumb to temptation. You ever thought of that? First Adam, last Adam. I get it from Paul. Was the first Adam a public representative of others? Yes. And Adam... Paul again, all died. Was the last Adam a sinless image bearer, son of God? Yes. Did he represent others? Yes. In Christ, all shall be made alive. Was the first Adam tempted by the devil? Yes, in the garden. In a luscious place without any other enemies but one. Was the last Adam tempted by the devil? Yes. Remember that? It's in Luke 4 and Matthew 4. The Spirit drives the incarnate Son of God out into the wilderness. And we usually think of the wilderness as like a scary place, right? And what happens? The temptation. What's interesting is that at the end of Luke's uh, genealogy of our Lord. He ends up calling Adam, you know, the son of, the son of, the son of. And Luke 3.38, Adam is called the son of God. Okay? And then we have Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, remember, last Adam, incarnate son of God, seed of the woman, full of the Holy Spirit, sinless, by the way, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness, Jordan, wilderness, Exodus. What's going on here? that which Israel ought to have been and weren't, Jesus is embodying himself. He's not only last Adam, he is faithful. He got it, ding, ding, ding. Faithful Israel as well. That's for another sermon. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. Some of you know, for 40 days, oops, for 40 days, wilderness 40 years, for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. Now notice, 
These verses follow Adam being identified as the son of God. By the way, who is this concept son of God? Does it merely refer to individual persons? Adam, son of God. Jesus, son of God. Believers, sons of God, lowercase s. Let my people go. You ever heard that? God through Moses to Pharaoh. My son, my firstborn. You ever heard that before? Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. What is it referring to? Ancient Israel is God's son. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Matthew chapter 2, remember that? I think someday in next year I'll be preaching that uh, section. I've been assigned it for, by Dr. Renhan for something else, and I thought I'd like to preach that. But that's Matthew chapter 2, utilizing uh, Hosea chapter 11, which utilizes the entire book of Hosea, and it, which utilizes Exodus chapter 4 language, identifying corporate Israel, and in the New Testament, connecting Jesus to corporate Israel, not as a failure like corporate Israel was, but as the quintessential obedient Israelite representing new Israel. It's so fascinating stuff, especially if it's true, right? It's not true. It's still fascinating, but it's not true. So here we have in Luke chapter 4, last Adam, Jordan, 40 days, wilderness, devil. Does he pass this first skirmish with the devil or not? Does he sin? No. For many, many years, I read Luke 4, and Matthew 4, as a rebuke to my soul and to others. Because you know how Jesus fought the devil? Quoted scripture, right? The devil did this, offered him this. Jesus, <coughs> the last Adam quoted scripture. The devil offered him this, that, and the other, which means somehow, some way. When we read John 12, and the devil is called the prince of this world, the ruler of this world, he does, this is kind of his domain in one sense. He stole it from the vice regent, Adam, when Adam sinned. But somebody's going to squish his head and conquer him. The last Adam, the Lord Jesus. But I used to read it as like, oh man, you know why I get mad on the freeway? Because I don't memorize scripture enough. The devil uses somebody pulling in front of me and somehow, some way, tinkers with my head and heart and I get sinfully angry and I don't have a scripture verse to, mem to, to, to quote at the time the devil attacks me. So I looked at Luke 4 and Matthew 4, not as Jesus' last Adam, conquering the devil, beating the devil, but as Jesus merely as our example. Now, is, should Jesus be our example in his, in his earthly life? Well, of course. Many times scripture calls us to follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul, the apostle, said that in 1 Corinthians 11, 2, I think. 
But is that why Luke and Matthew 4 are in there, the temptation in the wilderness? Methinks, no. Instead of Jesus being merely our example on what to do when we feel the onslaughts of the devil coming on, Jesus is actually presented there as our, it starts with an H and it ends with an O, our redemptive last Adam hero. Big difference, isn't it? Huge difference. When you view it that way, you, you, should, I know, you should view it that way and read it that way. Instead of getting all, oh man, I'm terrible, which you're worse than you realize, okay? We're all terrible. We're all upjacked. We're all messed up. We're all in process. Instead of doing that, you read it like, oh, there's my answer. There's the remedy. The skull-crushing seed of the woman assumed my flesh was sinless, never transgressed the law, represented me the entire time. The devil came after me in his person, and he beat him in my stead. That's a, that's a big paradigm shift there, isn't it, in the way we read those sections in Luke and Matthew's gospel. I think I have more. Fourth. I'm going to save that one. Maybe I'll just skip it and go to another one. That one's too long. It's really good, and I think I'll save it for the second hour. Uh, it is early, so maybe I can go to a second one here, or a third or fourth one, or whatever the number is. Do you want to know a secret? If you haven't figured it out, I'm on my phone. I took a screenshot because I've had computer problems for a week, over a week. And that's why I'm going back and forth and doing all this, so sorry. First time I've ever preached from my phone, last time I'm ever hopefully preaching from my phone. My wife has one of those things, what do you call it, tablets? I could have asked her to put it on there. Probably had to call Sean and ask him how to do it. But here's, here's another one. Unlike the first Adam who disobeyed and caused death to come by virtue of a divine threat, therefore a threat carried out, judgment, death is judgment. Unlike the first Adam who disobeyed and caused death, the seed of the woman, the last Adam, came to obey and to die and other, so that others might live. Should the first Adam had obeyed? Yes. If he had obeyed, what would have been endowed upon him? A status better than his created state. Uh, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Who's the first sinner? Adam. What did he fall short of? Glory. What is glory? A state of human existence not endowed upon Adam at his creation. It could have been one. Could have been attained too. God didn't have to offer that glory or life to him, but he did. He fell short of it. He sinned. He transgressed. He didn't attain. What comes as divine judgment? Death. When the last Adam come, what does he have to do to solve our problem? Our problem is twofold now. We've got death as the just liability uh, the, the type of punishment that God justly threatened and he brings upon us all. 
and we've got the lack of attaining something. So we need a last Adam who takes care of that death problem, the judgment problem, and who also takes care of our lack of attaining something, glory. So, listen, you don't want to be your own last Adam. You can't suffer all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross as a curse, and live through it. You don't have power to give up your own life and then to take it back. That's almost verbatim the words of Jesus. No one takes it from me. I give it up and I take it back. Destroy this temple and in three days... I'll raise it up. This is not a mere man. This is why the mediator between God and man must be man, and yet not exclusively and only man. This last Adam must deal with the guilt of our sin and be able to make it through the suffering and come out victorious over death. Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? 1 Corinthians 15, citing the Old Testament about the effects of the death of Christ in relation to death. The death of death and the death of Christ. John Owen wrote a book. The death of death in the death of Christ. The victory over death by virtue of the death of the Son of God incarnate in our flesh. We need that. He has to deal with our guilt. For all sin falls short of the glory of God. Adam fell short of the glory of God. Um, He has called you for this purpose to share his glory. 2 Thessalonians something or other. One of the epistles. His glory there is Christ's glory. Does he mean we're going to share in divine? We're going to be divine? Or does he mean the status attained by Christ, the incarnate Son of God, according to his human nature, a reward for his obedience. He didn't sin. He didn't fall short of glory. He attained a status of human existence never before enjoyed by anybody. And he has the power to confer it upon others. You don't want to be your own last Adam. You want Jesus to be your last Adam. And I'm preaching to the choir for most of you. Well, may these meditations on Genesis 3.15 see as the rest of the Bible looks back on it. May it encourage our hearts and help us to worship the Lord and sing. After I pray, Sean is going to lead us in a hymn. It's one 74, is that correct? Okay, and I think you'll see why. Well, I'm going to show you why in a moment, why I chose that hymn. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for... It's weird to say this. For cursing the serpent. Because we know that curse, judgment upon him ends up being mercy and kindness. For us. His work gets destroyed by the Son of God. 
Not only is he ultimately put in a place where he cannot harm anyone anymore, but many sons are brought to glory by the son who himself suffered and then entered glory according to his human nature. And it is by the very power that he preserves all things, the very power that was executed in his own resurrection, that he will transform our lowly bodies into a body of glory like his, as we read in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Thank you for the last Adam. Thank you that in order to get into the safe presence of God, we don't have to climb a ladder. We have to believe the gospel. And we pray that you'd help us to sing in grateful, with grateful hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.